Today is the 16th of December, 2014, and this is episode 170. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Richard Myers and Chris Beams, two of the guys behind the BitSquare project. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Adam. Yeah, thanks. We've been, you know, it's funny. I remember right when we were getting started and everybody was really excited about creating exchanges, right? We were talking about centralized exchanges and people wanted to replicate the success that they saw with Mt. Gox at the time. There was a push about maybe six months, nine months back towards the idea of decentralized exchanges. And that has manifested in a variety of different ways. The most notable one, although not tremendously successful, I would say, uh, has been counterparties implementation. You guys have something that, like, I I didn't appreciate the scope of this project until um, I finished reading your white paper before this interview. And why don't you explain to, to us, at the core, what is it that you're trying to do with BitSquare? The most basic, we're doing a... Bitcoin to national currency, fiat currency exchange. The unique aspect is that it's decentralized, truly decentralized. I mean, that's, that's the point that we'd really want to say sets us apart. I mean, we look for basically all aspects of a central point of failure and try to decentralize that. And I, I think we've succeeded. I mean, Manfred wrote that white paper and, and really spent a lot of time thinking through the various aspects. The other aspect that I think is significant is that we're really not doing anything, I would say, that's exotic from a Bitcoin standpoint. I mean, we're using what's built in primitive, the built in primitives of uh, Bitcoin for multi-signature addresses. And then for the, for the fiat side, for the, for the national currency side, we're doing just a basic arbitration. So that's as is done in some other exchanges like uh, local Bitcoins, for instance, or, or OTC. So this goes Bitcoin into uh, national currencies, like you said, and the national currencies back into Bitcoin. And it's essentially a peer-to-peer market. Exactly. Right. So you said that there are some analogs out there. Who do you consider? I mean, like, who, who are we talking about in this space right now who you think this is an improvement on that model? I think the thing that most people are familiar with, this is Chris speaking, by the way, the one that um, you know, has quite a bit of press out there and people are, are familiar with is Open Bazaar. So tell me what what is Open Bazaar compared to BitSquare? Open Bazaar is essentially an application that you're running. I mean, it's modeled as a web app. In the case of Open Bazaar, we're a desktop application uh, at the moment. Open Bazaar is forming a, a truly peer to peer market for the exchange and sale of theoretically anything. What BitSquare is doing is focusing really closely on the exchange of uh, Bitcoin for national currencies or for fiat currencies. And getting all of the particulars right there. And so this is an option that compares against, I mean, like we're based in the US, I, you know, let's talk Bitcoin's based in the US. Um, our corporate account goes through Coinbase, which is a pretty simple exchange, but it's certainly not peer to peer unless you consider, you know, Coinbase to be one of those peers. So let's walk through a basic transaction. Let's say that I want to buy $500 worth of Bitcoin. How do I do that? What, am I downloading software? You mentioned that this is a desktop application. You would download our application and you know, run that on your local server, it would bootstrap, just like Bitcoin bootstraps now to get to its peers. There's a, I mean, I can go, there's, there's sort of a happy path. That's sort of what we would go through first. 
you've got your desktop application. Now you've got the option. You can either add an offer to buy or sell Bitcoin, or you can see existing offers. You can see the order book that's distributed from the other peers and choose to take one of those offers. We also do something a little bit different in that we have not a reputation system, but a registration system. You're going to register your details on the blockchain, essentially. And then once you're registered, you can go ahead and take one of those existing offers in the order book or put in your own offer to buy or sell. So let's say Alice puts in an order book offer to buy a Bitcoin. And then Bob sees that offer and accepts it. I mean, this is at a high level now. So now it's the onus is on Alice to put to transfer her Bitcoin plus a small security deposit into a multi-sig wallet. Bob is going to then also transfer a small security deposit into that multi-sig wallet. And once that's done, they essentially now have a contract to buy and sell Bitcoin. Once that is established, now Bob is going to receive the bank account or whatever payment account information that Alice has out of the Bitcoin network. I mean, because it has to, has to happen with national currency, going will pay that account to Alice so that she gets the money for the Bitcoin. Once she's received this payment, he will send her a pre-signed transaction, essentially, with his signature that completes it and transfers the Bitcoin from the multi-sig now to Bob. Once she sees the money in her bank account, she can go ahead and sign her signature on that multi-sig wallet, and then the blockchain will handle the transfer of the Bitcoin and the refund of their security deposits. So that, that's a kind of a 10,000-foot level. We can go into more detail. Okay, so the first transaction that happens, somebody initiates one of these things. They either want to buy or they want to sell Bitcoin relative to some national currency that they have access to. or Because, I mean, that's important. It's not like if, if I wanted to receive you know, uh, euros, I couldn't do that because I don't have a bank account that's denominated in euros, right? That's right. Okay. So this is like, so this is, uh, again, it's like a series of local markets or it's a single market, but it allows people who are local to, to kind of find each other. Okay. So somebody places an order or indicates that there is an order that they want to place. They pay a fee to do that. At the point that it's matched with someone else, that person doesn't actually get the money. They are essentially creating a contract, like you said. Now, one of the things that's interesting about smart contracts, generally speaking, is that they're enforceable within the system. And that's something that kind of strikes me about this, is that one of your transactions necessarily has to be a bank transfer. And that is necessarily outside of the smart contract system. So it sort of seems like the contracts are more about recording the deal, recording that people understood the terms and were on board more than creating some sort of automated enforcement mechanism. Yeah, that's right. The side of the trade that can be enforced programmatically is, of course, the Bitcoin side, right? And so that's why we're holding in a kind of escrow. We're using multi-signature addresses used in other sort of coin applications. But the fiat side, the national currency side, the traditional banking side is, of course, uh, not so convenient, right? So what do we do there? Well, the contract is is exactly that, and and actually it, it's it's simply a contract that would be, you know, presumably legally enforceable in 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 any or most jurisdictions, and that contract is actually stored on each user's machine, it's digitally signed, etc., indicating that you know these two parties entered into a trade for this amount of Bitcoin at this price, and so on. Of course, you know, we hope that in the vast majority of cases, people never even see or care about that contract, but it is actually there very much as a contract that, you know, if you needed to, you would print out and, you know, take to small claims court. So you mentioned that each of these contracts is essentially in the blockchain. Now, I think what you mean by that, and I want to confirm this, 
Uh, and you also said that it's uh, stored on each participant's essentially computer. So is the actual contract being stored in the blockchain or is it a hash of the contract that both users have so that you can tell if it's been modified by one or the other because the correct one will correspond to the one that was put in the blockchain? Right. No, it, it's a hash of the contract that's included as an as a op return in the transaction. For instance, if you do go to some sort of arbitration, you can prove that, that that contract is the same contract that was done as part of the Bitcoin transaction. And you've got the timestamp there, too. Exactly right. I mean, the timestamp maybe isn't as important as that it goes with a certain amount of Bitcoin that's now been put into an account. But it certainly does establish that as well. Plus, it establishes who signed. You know, there's public-private key there that is also part of that contract. The default, the happy path is, is that a buyer places an order to buy Bitcoin, let's say, to buy one Bitcoin at the current price, $380. And then a seller comes along, sees that order, takes it, and then the Bitcoin is deposited. The fiat transfer is initiated there. The seller receives, the seller indicates that inside of BitSquare says fiat payment received. And their two keys come together to sign the payout transaction, as we call it, so that ultimately the buyer receives the Bitcoin. That's the happy path, right? Now, what if something goes wrong? Yes, the contract is actually there physically or digitally on each person's individual computer. But this is where arbitration would come in. And so BitSquare, as you've seen in the white paper and as people can read about in detail, BitSquare lays out a design for an arbitrator, also decentralized, that accommodates exactly this, this situation happening. You know, maybe the, the fiat transfer was never received, and we don't know why. Well, both parties, both the buyer and the seller, have essentially chosen an arbitrator at the beginning, part of the, the trade protocol that BitSquare lays out. An arbitrator has been assigned to this trade. And that arbitrator is totally passive, assuming that the trade goes well. Basically, the only role that that arbitrator plays in a given trade is that his public key has been identified and is you know, now part of the trade information. So if something goes wrong, the plaintiff in the case, whoever is having a problem, would then bring the arbitrator in at a certain point. This is a decentralized market. It's a peer-to-peer market. And it's a market that involves the banking system. So again, necessarily, there's this sort of, uh, you call it in your white paper, leaking of information. And I wanted to know if that's something that goes both ways or if it's just the person, which is to say that uh, in order for you to transfer me money, for example, you would need to have my, my banking information. You'd need to, need to know my real name. You'd need to know some routing numbers and relevant information. And it's different depending on where you are in the world. But there's, this, there's identity associated there. And that's not true on the Bitcoin side. So I, I was wondering, is there reciprocal leaking for people who are selling Bitcoin too? Or is that just something that is in only because it's necessary in order to use the legacy financial system? That's going to depend a little on the particular payment method you use. If you use a bank transfer, international wire, for instance, there may not be a leak. It may, may only go one direction. Where, where the isolation is, is that it's only the two people trading who, whose information, whose banking details and potentially name, if that's part of what's, what's included when you do the transfer, could be leaked. But the arbiter even doesn't know that information. Only if it goes, you know, if you're invoking the arbitration, then you have to make that information available. But it's really only just the two trading parties for whom necessarily that information is, is exchanged. So what do you think is like the ideal situation that this product is used in? And what, you know, and then after that, I'm going to ask you, which ones you think it's not that good for? 
you know, the problem that we're really trying to solve is this open, unsolved problem in Bitcoin. The only way to get in and out of the market today to acquire or divest yourself of Bitcoin is pretty much through centralized exchanges, the exchanges as we know them, whether that was Mt. Gox or you know, now typically Coinbase or Bitstamp or whomever you use. And there's simply not really much of an alternative. Maybe you can use local Bitcoins if, if that works for you, if it's available in your area, if you're comfortable with that. If there's a Satoshi Square nearby, that's a great option, right? To go physically you know, show up in person and trade Bitcoins with somebody. By the way, that's where the name BitSquare comes from, uh, is being inspired by Satoshi Square. And you can think of BitSquare as taking Satoshi Square online. So the ideal use case for us, or, or you might say who we're building it for, is everyday people who are, you know, more and more people each day are understanding what Bitcoin's about. They want to get involved. They want to get into the market. They want to hold Bitcoin. They want to use Bitcoin. They want to buy things with Bitcoin. How can they do that in a way that is as decentralized as Bitcoin itself and is as uh, privacy respecting and secure as Bitcoin itself, the privacy respect nature of decentralized systems? There isn't much of an option for that today. And that's what we wanted to build with BitSquare. You can't necessarily expect there to be even a local Bitcoin option in every national banking jurisdiction. But you could imagine anybody installing the application, and if they can find other people in their area also running BitSquare, then they can do a trade. They don't have to wait for somebody to establish a centralized exchange or even create their payment system in a local Bitcoin or some over-the-counter. It allows people to basically just be, you know, start exchanging without having to wait for anybody to do anything in a centralized way. So the downside of centralized solutions for something like this is the Mt. Gox scenario, basically, where the centralized entity does something bad and then bad things happen to everybody who had their funds under the protection of or were trading through or really anybody who touched who had funds still with the you know group that goes under they suffer a lot so that's a very specific risk though and there are some advantages to centralized solutions if the parties are trustworthy so where do you i mean like where do you think this fits in like you said there's the problem with the central party, the Gox scenario, but it's, all, it's not only somebody who's the central party having a mistake, you know, they're also centralized servers are also centralized targets for hacker attacks, denial of service attacks, <laughs> governmental attacks in certain, certain ju- jurisdictions. That's probably the, the headline why a centralized server solution is going to be not so good. There are other more subtle reasons too why a decentralized service could be useful. One that we were talking about earlier was that market manipulation can occur. I think um, some of the Chinese exchanges, this has come up as well as even on Gox, there was a lot of talk about sort of manipulation because since the settlement is all being handled in a centralized way, you don't know if a trade was actually exchanged for real money or if it was just an accounting fiction. But with a decentralized exchange, you actually know that each trade is, is settled in some way and it's not just some accounting fiction. So. That might be a more subtle aspect of where decentralized exchange is, is going to be valuable. That's interesting. Do these transactions look any different than normal Bitcoin transactions? Because, I, mean, I mean, that's another aspect that I do want to get to um, is, is the actual software, because you've essentially modified, as far as I can tell, you've modified the Satoshi client and built these features basically directly into it. Is that, am I seeing this correctly? It's actually a bit different than that. Um, th- this is built from the ground up. 
so it's a desktop application, much like Bitcoin Core is, but uh, the the stack is different, and the software is written from scratch. Uh, so so the technology being used is the actual desktop, you know, sort of toolkit being used. Yeah, and everything else from there is custom, actually. So tell me about the the process there, because I see that this is an open source project up on GitHub. You know, what's the Satoshi? The Satoshi client is interesting because Bitcoin has so many quirks about it that it's quite difficult to replicate all of those quirks when you're kind of creating something from the ground up. So what was the what was the decision to create this from the ground up? Was it something that you just had to do in order to get the features in there that you wanted? So the reason that this wasn't based on the Satoshi client or a Bitcoin core is because uh, there was actually no no need to whatsoever. Um, because so far as we're interacting with, with uh, the Bitcoin network and the blockchain itself, uh, everything that we need is encapsulated in Bitcoin J, which lots of listeners will know is the most popular library in, in the Java world for working with Bitcoin. So when we need to you know, create and issue a Bitcoin transaction, for example, whether that's a multi-sig transaction or what have you, we just do that through Bitcoin J and it makes things uh, quite convenient. Everything else in the app, there are many non-Bitcoin aspects of the application, like our network itself, the, what we would say the BitSquare network, is not the Bitcoin network. So we're not, we're not operating on that same peer-to-peer network or that same overlay network as Bitcoin itself does, we, we create our own, which is actually a lot more akin to the BitTorrent network. We're using a, a distributed hash table or DHT-based network there. And that's also something that, you know, if we had just used the Bitcoin core, it, it doesn't work that way, right? So, so we needed to build that ourselves. And we also use another library that helps with that. That's called Tom P2P, which is a DHT library. So if you think about what the application is itself, it's fundamentally a, a peer-to-peer desktop application that happens to be written in Java and JavaFX again. And, and one of the reasons for that is that it makes it cross-platform by default. Today, we're, you know, we have available native installers for Windows and for Linux and for OSX and for any other exotic platform, people could just run an executable jar file. So it's truly cross-platform, and that's why we chose Java there. That's also, you know, my personal background is in Java. Beyond that, it, you know, it, it feels like a desktop app. Tables and combo boxes, you know, all the sort of trappings that you would, that you would need in, a, in, in, in something that's going to perform all the functions of an exchange. You know, and you can think of it as just that. It is like an exchange, like any other. But it happens to be built in a, in a fully peer-to-peer way. I think that's a whole emerging... Space, that's one of the things that makes, I think, Bitcoin development in the largest sense really interesting is that we're actually pioneering the space, not just BitSquare, but like as a community, we're, we're treading new ground into the space of actually building out peer-to-peer applications. What kind of uh, peer-to-peer applications do people really use? There's Bitcoin. Uh, Skype at one time uh, would have counted. It didn't really count anymore today as a, as a properly peer-to-peer app. This is such uncharted territory, and it's been one of the big challenges for us to figure out how do we actually build a really peer-to-peer application. To me, that's one of the exciting parts of what we're building, is that it's just uh, so much new territory. Beyond that, beyond uh, you know, building out the peer-to-peer network, the, the application itself, building on top of Bitcoin J, from there, it's simply the designing and architecting, if you will, an open source desktop application. 
This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fast, right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is bridge. That's B-R-I-D-G-E. Bridge. You've got until the 20th of December to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Back to the show. You're using the Bitcoin network for coins, right? You're watching coins and there is a wallet, there's wallet functionality built into your application. And then the other thing that I see you're using it for is again, like the storing of contract hashes. And are you doing that with registrations as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, so you, when you register, you're basically registering a blinded copy of your banking information. And that hash is stored with your registration. In fact, that's the primary you know, function of, when, of, of the registration fee. It's not a, a large fee. It's just a tr- small transaction to avoid some of the civil attacks. But it's primarily that you're, you've got a unique banking information, at least in some jurisdictions. I mean, that may not, in some jurisdictions, maybe that isn't unique. We, we've heard there may be some areas in Eastern Europe where you can create millions of bank accounts. But in most countries, you can usually not create too many bank accounts. So that gives us a certain level of protection from people creating a lot of false accounts that they, they don't plan to keep. So you register and you make a blinded copy of this, a blinded hash that gets written into the blockchain. So yeah, absolutely. The registration is in there. Besides those two elements, the actual use, you know, the wallet functionality, Bitcoin functionality, and then the storing of the hashes for the various things that you're doing it for, what functionalities have you added with your application besides those things? What are the things that your app does that aren't from Bitcoin that are the new things? Essentially, what it, what it takes to place and take orders from both perspectives, whether you're a buyer or you're a seller, uh, the, the use cases that I, I want to place an order, meaning I want to buy so many Bitcoin at a certain price. And you can imagine, you know, this gets pretty nuanced pretty quickly. Like, Maybe you say, I want to buy one Bitcoin at $380, but I would be willing to buy a half a Bitcoin at that same price. So you, so you create a range of the amount of Bitcoin that you're willing to, to buy. And so, so that's the, and the idea there is to make it easier to match, right? Exactly. That's really an important point because the software itself isn't doing order matching. And that's one way that we're different from a lot of typical exchanges. We let the users do their own matching. That's from a kind of being cautious from a legal perspective. We don't want the onus on us that we're responsible because that actually invites in a lot of uh, questioning. And of course, the code is open source and so on. But at least for now, we, we want to have people match their own orders. And so if they're placing orders to buy some range, you're exactly right. That makes it easier for a prospective seller to match and take that order. To finish that answer, right? What else is there besides, of course, everything necessary to to build out the the peer to peer network, the distributed hash table based network? What's necessary to actually perform the Bitcoin transactions and minimal kind of wallet functionality that we have? Everything else is essentially in usability necessary to make such an application user friendly and usable. And we found not not a terribly trivial thing to do. 
what's on the roadmap for us, right? What we haven't yet implemented, but we've uh, laid out considerable design for, and you see this in the white paper, is arbitration functionality. That's a whole layer subsystem in the application that will require building out quite a bit of stuff. But again, that's a little bit down the road. Okay, so let's talk about an arbitration scenario. I know this isn't implemented. You just said that. I'm fascinated by these ideas that you can completely cut out the enabling platform and just make it between people. Because that's the thing really that arbitration, I think in your case, allows you to do. It means that even though you have funds being controlled by multisig and they can't just be controlled by the two parties, you as the platform creator, as the platform maintainer, I'm not even sure what, what the role of your company is going to be in this open source project ongoing, have no responsibility. You don't hold any of the keys, right? Absolutely not. Yeah, we don't hold the keys. And, and I just w- correct one thing, too. It's, we're not actually a company either. This is a, I guess you call it sort of a nonprofit organization at this point. Is it a nonprofit organization well, not, or is it more of just a volunteer project building yeah, open source software? A volunteer project. I mean, we're not, we're not like some registered nonprofit, but we're, we're, not, I'm, we're, not a, yeah, we're not a corporate model. We're a volunteer software development team. It's actually maybe a really interesting uh, topic, Adam, and, and something that we might dig into later or it might even be its own whole conversation at some point because the way that we're attempting to model this is, is one, uh, especially since we're going to be asking for some crowdfunding that we have really clear governance around you know, what happens with that money, that it's totally transparent, that people can you know, follow exactly what happens with it and so on. But at the same time, we don't have any plans to incorporate or become... Basically, there's, there's, no, there's no profit. This is an application where basically any attempt to really profit would result in a fork and somebody would do it cheaper. So to the degree that any money comes into this application, it's likely that it'll be at marginal cost. Again, whether or not we include this in the talk, it's, um, it's, we, you know, I think it's really interesting. It's kind of like a distributed autonomous organization, et cetera, but there's, you know, there's no IPO involved. There's no, there's no coin involved. We're just trying to make, in a way, the simplest possible, purest form of a nonprofit imaginable. So what, what I hear you saying is a donation drive. Y- yeah. There's- well, I mean, a crowdfund, generally, there's something that's being funded that people who funded get and people who don't fund it don't. So uh, am I, I mean, right? Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of ways to think about it. it do- donation is certainly a valid way to think, particularly after we arrive at 1.0. And, and we have a very particular kind of meaning of what 1.0 is. It's basically fully ready for prime time on the Bitcoin main net. Right and uh, and as you know as secure as we can imagine with complete arbitration and so on, um, that's 1.0. And after that point, the question is, how is this application maintained, and and who does that? And that will likely come through a form of in-app donation, where the user is actually choosing. There's a fee involved for the transaction, for example, or for the trade, but the user is choosing. Is it the arbiters? Is it the developers? Some kind of sliding scale form. We're really experimenting with ideas right there, and we don't have anything final. But that's after 1.0. On the way to 1.0, this uh, crowdfunding model that we're planning to roll out shortly is something like an iterative crowdfunding model. And we plan to do that on top of Lighthouse, actually, which will also be launching soon. We plan to align our, our launches, basically. And basically, we say iteratively crowdfund our way through our milestones in our roadmap. And in that way, Sure, you could use the word donation, and that's probably even a fair definition. 
Um, you know, that's what Kickstarter says with their crowdfunding campaigns, that it's donations. But another way to think about it is that it's like prepaying for the application. We, we think this is an application. Hope lots of other people want to see it. And it's, it's not free. Uh, you know, we've been doing this out of pocket for, for many months now, but you know, it costs something. And so if people want to see it, we want to see if it's possible to basically have folks prepay for the cost of getting to 1.0. And then perhaps we switch to a, to a don- donation model or a crowdfunding by feature, or we'll see after that point. So now what I hear you saying is threshold-based crowdfunding where, I mean, so if you don't get funding, does the project not happen? If you do get funding, does it happen faster? If you get, I mean, like, what's the, what's the gradient here? What does it matter if you succeed in this circumstance? So basically the question is what happens if, if we, uh, let's say we do our first round of crowdfunding. And that's actually not the question. Okay. I'm actually trying, I'm, I'm still trying to understand exactly what this looks like. I, I haven't seen a, a paper on the uh, crowdfunding or anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can point me to something like that. But the, the question that I'm asking is more, more along the lines of it sounded like a bounty roadmap sort of approach where you lay out all the stuff that you're going to do. You lay out the thing it's going to cost. And then you ask people to pay you the money so that you can then do those things. And as you get more money, you do more things. And so what I'm asking is, am I correct in repeating that back to you? Is that actually what's happening? Uh, Let's just start from there. (laughs) Yeah. So imagine a series of milestones up to 1.0. And each one of those milestones will be associated with a crowdfunding uh, round or iteration. You know, whatever that dollar figure is, it's associated with milestone 0.2, you know, we'll ask people to pay that. That'll be happening again through Lighthouse, through the Lighthouse platform, uh, which probably many listeners are familiar with. It's a decentralized crowdfunding platform built by Mike Kern, who's also responsible for Bitcoin J. The reason that we really have a lot of excitement and, and, and hope for this process is that those are necessarily small amounts. It's basically just enough for the next and very clear what the what the functionality is. So it's functionality that if you're a user who's interested in BitSquare being realized in the world, you would look at those features and you'd say, yep, I see that needs to happen. I'm willing to, to help make it happen. And two months down the road, that milestone either did or did not get completed. The features either are or are not complete. And then it's your choice uh, whether you want to participate in the, in the next crowdfund. And so in this way, it's a very low risk model for everybody. It's, of course, low risk for the people that are participating in the crowdfunding because with talking about figures like just a couple months worth of development, this is a very low absolute dollar or euro figure. And so there's not much at risk from the development side. It's also a way to manage our own risk because if we're building something that people, in fact, do not want, right? If we can't even fund the next couple of months, that's very interesting feedback. Now, why aren't we able to? Well, it might be marketing issues or it might be just you know, inability to get the word out or not effectively communicating something. But if it's in actual fact that people don't want to see a decentralized Bitcoin exchange, that's really good to know, <laughs> right? Before we go run out and build the rest of it. So, of course, what, what would actually happen if we failed to meet a funding goal? We would, of course, follow up and ask and try to figure out what it was and adjust our course and respond better to what it is that people want or explain better what it is that we're actually doing, right? But it's a, we, we hope it's a very tight feedback, low-risk, responsive way to fund something that is 
free and open source, free in the sense of freedom, like uh, the GPL for people that are familiar with that. And, you know, our sort of greatest aspiration here is that this isn't just a, a, a way to fund BitSquare, but that maybe it's the beginning of, of, of a way to fund all kinds of free and open source software, all the things that don't really fit into commercial models or aren't really, as, uh, as I think Mike Hearn likes to say, they aren't really startup shaped. BitSquare isn't really startup shaped. It doesn't fit a kind of VC model very well. So we need new business models there. We need new funding models. And we, we hope that we're scratching the surface. The crowdfunding campaign is going to start in the near future. Do you have any, I mean, like, have you settled on the details of when this is going to go down? Basically soon, <laughs> uh, depending, of course, on when this uh, goes live and so on. In the next couple of weeks, roughly speaking, uh, that's dependent on a few things. That's dependent on when Lighthouse goes live. And that's dependent on, of course, you know, us having our eyes dotted and T's crossed, not just with the software, but like I mentioned earlier, like with our own governance information, right? You know, what we point people to so that they understand where their money is going and lots of little things about, you know, we use multi-sig in, in the app for escrow for the trades. But of course, that we also have, you know, multi-sig set up for the crowdfund itself and that it's very clear, you know, who has the keys. And we've been down this road recently in the, in the community a few times, right? A few times, yeah. yeah. So, so it's on the order of a couple of weeks is the, the rough answer. Once you start working on a decentralized application, you really see opportunities for decentralization everywhere. And that's, that's what we're trying to take to our organization as well. I mean, we don't want a single point of failure in the organization just like we don't want it in the application. So we have a lot of listeners who are technical, a lot of listeners who like open source software. Your project is an open source project. Are you guys looking for any help at this point? And what types of skills are useful? Yeah, we absolutely are. Um, I mean, obviously, Java developers are always appreciated, people with uh, Bitcoin experience. But if you're not a developer, we still can certainly use people to participate as testers. We're looking to do tests every week or every two weeks where we get on an IRC chat and we get the latest nightly buildup and just do it, you know, just go through some trades on testnet. And that's been really productive and a good way to get direct feedback between the developers and people who might want to use the application. Web designers, we actually, I mean, we have a, a, a good backend on our website, but we could certainly use people who have some creative skills to polish it up a little. And just spreading the word. I mean, this is, we're not a VC funded company. You know, anybody who's interested and thinks this is good for the Bitcoin ec ecosystem, we really want you to talk about it and ask us questions and, and just get the word out that this is something that, that they want and would use. One of the other things that we can really use is, um, you know, people with a security background. It's a pretty rare bird to find people um, that are very familiar with, with Bitcoin, very familiar with peer-to-peer -peer network architecture, very familiar with distributed hash table kind of technology and so on, who can really help us think through all the kind of threat modeling. I think anybody who takes a look at the white papers that we have online and the risk analysis document, you can find all of this linked from the bitsquare.io website. I think anybody who takes a look at those documents because one of the things that impressed me and, and made me want to, to join the effort is, is I saw how, how diligent Manfred, the, the founder of the project, had been. But we're by no means done. And people out there who you know, are critically minded, skeptically thinking, security oriented people, we would love to hear, <laughs> you know, where, where are the holes that we haven't found yet? 
Thanks for listening to episode 170 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show is provided by Richard Myers, Chris Beams, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.